This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Take your Bible out and turn to Colossians chapter 1. While you're doing that, I'm looking down here at an exciting view I have. I have a front row full of middle school boys. And I've said to them already while we were doing the the shake and bake earlier, you know, shaking hands. And I said, these are your reserved seats every Sunday. Every Sunday I want this full of middle school boys right here. And then once you fill up this row, you kick the adults out of the second row, and that's yours too, okay? Until you take the whole center section full of middle school boys. Can you do it? I think you can. You know why? Because you're cool. That's what I think. I think you can do it. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read today, you follow with me, verses 16 and 17. So we start this morning. We're in a series for our guests called Stand Firm. We're going through the book of Colossians. Verse 16. For everything, stop right there. Think about what everything means. Everything means everything, all right? What, what about, no, no, no what abouts. Everything, right? Everything was created by him. Well, wait a second. Who is him? You have to bounce back to verse 15. He's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. I mean, if you don't understand everything, he makes it pretty simple, doesn't he? Heaven and earth, everything created by Jesus, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And he says it again, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. Right? Let's stop right there. That's as far as we're going to go this morning. Theology matters. Would you, I don't know if that's not your notes probably, but make that somewhere, find somewhere at the top of your notes, write those words, theology, T-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Theology matters. As a Christian, you're, you know, if you are a Christian, no matter how young or old you are in the faith, you ought to be a student of theology. And theology is simply the doctrine of God. There are tons of ideas floating around the world today about God and who he is and how he works. Someone, uh, someone here recently, I don't know who it was, but this has described modern-day evangelical Christianity with this term, and it's not a, not a, a good description of evangelical Christianity, by the way, but has described us in the evangelical world as having cafeteria Christianity. You know what a cafeteria is, where you go through the, the line, you say, I want a lot of that and a little bit of that and no thanks, none of that. And someone says, we are practicing these days cafeteria Christianity. I get to choose. What that means is We think I get to choose theologically what suits me, and I can change or ignore what doesn't. Let me say to you, that kind of mentality is not standing firm, it's crumbling. 
When someone mentions, and I hear people, I hear people, church people, I hear people who claim to be Christians. They talk about God in terms like they talk about the man upstairs. I hear those kind of phrases. They're telling something about their theology. By the way, that's less than a reverent, less than a respectful way of referring to God. I remember former Los Angeles Dodger manager Tommy Lasorda. We lived out in Southern California when Tommy was the manager of the Dodgers. And I can remember Tommy often in interviews talking about the the great Dodger in the sky. You You know what Tommy revealed when he said that? He revealed something about his theology, didn't he? Something that he believed about God. God gave only a few men in Scripture And all those thousands of years from Genesis to Revelation, he only gave a few men a glimpse of who he is in glory, in his glory in heaven. And that vision of God that these men got formed a theology that it's in the word of God should influence my theology and yours as well. For example, if you want to turn back there to Isaiah chapter 6, here's one of the great, great passages that teaches something about God and who he is. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim, angelic beings, seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, With two he covered his head, with two he flew. And one of these angels, these seraphim, called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. Isaiah said the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why did Isaiah say that? He tells us. He said, for I'm a man of unclean lips. What was he saying? I don't say holy words like that. He's a prophet. Out of my mouth comes things that should not come. Out of my mouth, I am doomed. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And I'm doomed, why? Because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. What an amazing vision of God Isaiah was given. By the way, who is that Lord of hosts that he's describing there that he saw? The Lord of hosts is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Who is Isaiah seeing? Jesus in his pre-incarnate state before he was born a baby in Bethlehem. He saw him there. John, who wrote the last book of the Bible, had a revelation. You can turn back to Revelation chapter 1. Here's another illustration. Here's another vision of God and his glory. In, in Isaiah, or excuse me, John had this vision of God in Revelation chapter 1. He, he saw Christ. Now, this Isaiah was before Jesus. John is writing what happened to him maybe 50 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And here is his description of who he saw. Look with me, starting in verse 10. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That would be Sunday. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. 
Loud and clear is what he means there. Saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. Who's telling me this? And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. I remember, I, John had been Jesus' best friend on earth. He said, I know who this is, but he's different. Dressed in a long robe and a gold sash wrapped around his chest, his head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like bronze, fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. And how did John respond? Similar to Isaiah, he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He recognized Jesus, but he saw him differently. He saw him as the Almighty God. You see, we learn theology from passages like these. And we've got to church, hear me. We have got, if cafeteria Christianity is the thing that's happening today, we've got to stand firm and say, we're not going to participate in that. We're not going to say, we'll make you God however we want you to be. We'll put words in your mouth. We'll take your words that you said and put in the scriptures and twist them to meet our own desires and our own desires and, and designs. We've got to be grounded in what Paul told Titus was the sound doctrine of God's word. Why is that? Because if we're not grounded in sound doctrine, if you don't have a theology that is biblical through and through, what's going to happen, our temptation will be to craft a theology, listen, that suits me but may not suit God. That's our temptation. So today we're going to learn some theology. Paul's describing to the Colossian church there in Colossians chapter 1 just why Jesus is the preeminent one of the universe. He wants this Colossian church, he wants you and me, God does, to know that Jesus occupies a role above all others. And here's some of what we learn from these verses. First of all, if you're taking notes, jot this down. He is the creator of the universe. Everything was created by him. All things, John said. Now, what that means is this. Please listen, because here's some false doctrine that you'll be told that Jesus was a created being. He was not. He is the creator. He was not created by God because he is God. And as God, he is the creator. And when he says all things were created by him, how many loopholes does that leave? None. For those who want to say that although he created everything himself, he himself was created first. That's what some people will tell us. Not so, says the scripture. He is the creator of everything in the universe. And then Paul says, let me just kind of categorize it. He's creator, first of all, of everything that's visible. Now that's easy for you and I to figure out, isn't it? Everything that's visible means everything I can see. Everything I can see. I can see this world. I can see the stars in the sky. I can see whatever's on this planet. I can see it. It's visible. Even if I have to look through a microscope, it's visible. Even if I have to look through a telescope, it's visible. I can see it. Visibility is not a difficult thing to understand. 
It's what we can see. And by the way, that includes you and me, doesn't it? He's our creator. But then Paul says he's also creator of the invisible things. What would that be? Well, again, very simply, that would be the things I can't see. What's he talking about there? Paul explains, he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Wait a second, thrones, you're talking about position in in government, you know, like Queen Elizabeth on the throne in England, authorities, uh, you know, like like the people that, that lead our country, the policeman that turns his blue lights on behind me when he's the authority, the judge that I stand before, he's the authority. Is that what Paul's talking about? And the answer, of course, would be no. Why not? Because those people are, thank you, a couple of you are with me. Those people are visible. He says these are the invisible Now, we believe these to be, he means here, angelic beings. Not talking about worldly governments and rulers. Because we can see them. But the angelic realm, we cannot see. I mean, have any of you ever seen a seraphim flying around your house? Six wings, you know, two of them flying? No. And if you say yes, we'll have a talk after church. We cannot see angels. We cannot see demonic powers. And apparently by what Paul's telling us here, they have rank and they have authority in their own world. Satan, of course, would be the top dog demon. Satan and the demons, by the way, why would you say include Satan? Because Satan and the demons are nothing more than fallen angels who opposed God, rebelled against God, and were cast from heaven. All right, now, let me think about this, Rick. It says there that Jesus created everything. Did Jesus create demonic activity and the wickedness that follows their their activity? Did Jesus create that? Did Jesus create Satan? And the answer is not complicated. He created them in heaven to serve him. He didn't create them evil, however. They of their own accord and their own free will, however, chose to become evil. And it's very similar to the evil that we see among mankind. Jesus did not create wickedness. Jesus did not create disease. Jesus doesn't create tragedy and trauma. But he can take those things that happen because of sin in this world, and he can, as Romans 8.28 says, do what? Work all of those things together for his good. He can overcome any evil, any wickedness in this world. When he finished his work of creation, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, he was done creating, he looked at everything that was created, and he said, it is good. We just sang that. He saw the world and said, it was good. There was nothing evil originally with creation. But later, sin and rebellion turned what was created to be good into something evil. Now, Paul's writing, especially this phrase about the principalities and the dominions and the thrones and so forth, he's writing this to confront an error by the Gnostics, that false cult we've been talking about that was infiltrating the Colossian church because they believed in angels. And they believed that there were ranks and classes of spirit beings between God and matter. And they believed that Christ belonged to one of those ranks one of those classes of angels. It's really not much different than the Jehovah's Witnesses who are a cult, their belief that Jesus really is nothing more than Michael the archangel. 
Paul makes it crystal clear Jesus is not an angel because he's not a created being. Jesus created the angels and everyone else, whether they are visible or invisible. Then the Bible tells us this about the creator, Jesus Christ. It says the universe was created, he says, by him, verse 16. By him. What does that mean, that it was created by him? That means the power to create was in his being. For how long was it in his being? He is eternal. It's always been in his being. He created. He was the architect. He was the, the builder. It wasn't created, please hear me, by some unnamed supreme being. The world was created by who? Tell me, church. Jesus Christ. It was by him. Secondly, he says, this world was created through him. Now we have a, we have a triune God. We believe in a trinity. We believe in God the Father, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. Jesus, the Son, is one of those three. And he is the one of the three who actually performed the creative works that we read about in Genesis 1. He is the one when it says, And God breathed into man the breath of life. Who did that? Jesus. Remember what he says in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John? I am the resurrection and the life. Life is found. Bob Perdue talked about this when he was here last month. Life is wrapped up in Jesus. He is the giver of life. He's always been. Well, you might say, well, where was the rest of the Trinity in creation? They were involved. All three. But you can't separate out just one person from the Godhead and pull him out from the Godhead, from the Trinity, and separate him from the other two as, act, as though Jesus acted independently and just got up one day and looked at the Father and the Spirit and said, you know what I feel like doing today? I feel like creating. So here's what I'm going to do. And they looked at him like, what? We never thought of this. Well, this isn't something we discussed. This isn't something we agreed upon. Yeah, but I think it's going to be a good thing. It didn't happen that way. Jesus always acts, by the way, eternally in his role as the Son. John chapter 1, verse 3. John chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what they say. All things were created. Again, John's talking about Jesus. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing that was created has been created. The world was created through him. John, separate from Paul, says he's the creator. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says that through the Son, through Jesus, it was through him that the Father made the universe. And in verse 10 in Hebrews 1, it says, In the beginning, Lord, he's talking to Jesus, you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. And there in Genesis 1, you're probably familiar with the first chapter of Genesis and the creation account. The Bible starts off with the words, you know them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, doesn't it say that? And some of you are saying, wait a second, it says God, not Jesus. Jesus is God. Sometimes we try to complicate the simple. God created the heaven and the universe. And we find God in that creation chapter saying things like, we just sang this, let there be light. And there was light. And he said, let the earth produce vegetation. 
and the flowers and the trees were there. And God called it day, it says. And God said it was good. And God did and God said over and over in Genesis chapter 1 and then in verse 26, God said these words. Listen carefully. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Hello? Us and our, you English majors, are plural, aren't they? Plural pronouns, personal pronouns. Plural, that means more than one. You don't talk about yourself and say, we're going to so-and-so, we're going to do this, you know. You and who? Me, myself, and I. You know, you don't do that, you know. God uses that. Now, how can that be? little Hebrew here. The word for God in Genesis chapter 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a plural word. When you see I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it's like us putting S on the end of our words. It makes it plural. Just like we read in Isaiah chapter 6 about the seraphim. Those angelic beings talking to one another, that's plural. That's more than one. They're seraphs, but there's more than one, so they're seraphim. The Elohim means God, but it's a plural word meaning more than one. But here's the, here's, all right, well, how do we work this out? Because we know that the God of the Old Testament was very, very clear that he is one. Moses told the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that was very important for them to know because they're going into a world and they've come out of a world where there are just tons of gods and all their, all their heathen paganism and, and, you know, God for this and a God for that. And he says, no, 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 God is one. And that was one of the reasons when Jesus was teaching that the Jews called him a blasphemer. Because he claimed to be one with the Father, didn't he? I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And they said, that's blasphemy because God is one. There can't be more than one God. And you're saying there's multiple gods. And he said, no, we're one. But they wanted to kill him because of that. They couldn't understand how God, how the Jews couldn't understand how God could be God and how the Jesus could be God and the Father could be God without there being more than one God. But what's so, you know how you can't see the forest for the trees sometimes? Their own word in their own language, Elohim, is plural. But he's one at the same time. By the way, what about the Spirit? Was he involved in creation? We know that he was, Genesis 2 says the Spirit of God, Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was involved in this act as well. So if you take Genesis 1 and you take Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where we are this morning, and you pull them together, here's the conclusion that you must come up with. It was Jesus who said, let there be light. Let there be vegetation. It was Jesus who said it was good. Why? Because Jesus is the creator. And why was it created? Paul answers that. He says not only was it created by him and through him, he says it was created for him. You want to know why he made this earth? 
The whole universe exists for one purpose, and that purpose is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. The psalmist wrote this, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord, for he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Now, you know that word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that you see in your Bible, most often in the Old Testament. It's all caps, Lord. That word in the Old Testament is the Hebrew. They, they would not write the Hebrew word in there. They so revered the name Yahweh. In fact, they weren't even sure how to pronounce it. We just kind of guess Yahweh, or Jehovah. That's the word Yahweh, which translated means I am, or it means the eternal one. Moses said to the bush, Who do I tell them as he's talking to the Lord? Go back to Egypt. Tell them, let my people go. Well, who do I tell them is sending me? What's your name? You tell them, I am that I am. I was like, what What is that? I am that I am. It means I am the eternal one. That's the name for God. And when you see Lord like that, L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh. And you probably know that Jesus, in not such a subtle way, identified himself in the New Testament as Yahweh when he told the Jews this. He said, I assure you, John chapter 8, verse 58, I assure you that before Abraham was, look what he does, before Abraham was, I am. Wait a second, those two tenses conflict. Before We would say before Abraham was, I was too. That's not what he said. He said before Abraham was, I am, because he's using the eternal Principle that I always was, I always am, I always will be. But I predated Abraham. Made them mad when he said that. Do you you remember when on Palm Sunday the Jewish leaders told Jesus that his followers were cheering too loud and too much? And he said, tell them to quiet down. Do you remember that story there on Palm Sunday? And Jesus replied, listen, if they don't praise me, the rocks are going to start crying out my praises. The rocks, why? Why do you say that? Because everything in this universe was originally created for the glory of Jesus Christ. But it's messed up, isn't it? Not everything in this world glorifies Christ. Sin did that. Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans 8 that all of creation, he said, is groaning, eagerly awaiting the day when Jesus will restore it, when he will redeem it to what he originally made it to be. He is the creator. Then secondly, we have to move quickly here. Paul explains he is the precursor, Jesus is, to the universe. The creator, the precursor. Precursor means someone who proceeds, someone who goes before. And verse 17 starts out with saying he is before all things. That's very simply another way of saying before anything in the universe existed, before anything was created, Jesus was already there. Have you ever wondered, and if you're a parent, your kids will ask you this question sometime as they're growing up. You ever wondered, well, okay, well, how did God get started? You know, where where did God come from? Who made him? When did he first show up on the scene? And all of us have probably asked that question, and our children, and the answer, the simple and the correct answer is, he always was. I can't wrap my mind around that, can you? 
He has no beginning and he has no ending. And that's, we, we have a hard time with that because eternity is hard for us to comprehend and imagine. But it's not impossible. In fact, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, listen, what it says about God. He has planted eternity in the human heart. It's there. The knowledge that eternity is real, that there is no beginning, that there is no ending, that there is, we live in this eternal universe. It's there. He planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. It's hard to grasp that. We can't quite grasp it. Why? Because we are finite, not infinite in our understanding. In fact, Solomon, who wrote that passage in Ecclesiastes 3, he goes on, with all his wisdom, he concluded in the next verse that, you know what it is? This is the wisest man who ever lived. It's really, truly, I think, a waste of time to try and figure out eternity. Try to sit there and let your brain boil and overboil and overload and burn out. Trying to figure, he says, don't waste your time doing that. In fact, he says in verse 12, so I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. You know, you're not going to figure it out because it's beyond you. So don't be, don't try too hard to explain what you can't. Accept it. Just accept it. As Solomon says, and enjoy the time that God's given you. Jesus, by the way, Jesus acknowledged his eternality. Did he know that he was eternal? Yes. That's what he was saying in that statement before that I quoted from him about being before Abraham. That's what he meant in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega is the Greek alphabet A and Z. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. Now, what does that mean? Listen to me, church, that your Savior is eternal. Why is that important for me? That your Savior is eternal means there is nothing he hasn't seen before on this earth. He's seen it all, whatever we can come up with. He says, yeah, I've seen that happen before. Doesn't matter what trial or what tribulation or what crisis you might be facing in your life right now, Jesus has already been down that road before with somebody else. This isn't his first rodeo. Not only that, because he's eternal, another thing that we're told, we understand, and is important for you, because he's eternal, he knows my future. He does. I don't. I don't know my future. Jesus does, and he promises that he'll go there with you if you know him as your Savior, no matter where your future leads. It's always, however, just better to let him lead you there than for you or me to try and take him along with us. Let me, he wants to go first. He wants to lead us through life. And because he's eternal, he's always going to be around who else but Jesus can say with confidence? Nobody, but, but Jesus can say this. Hey, listen to me. Look, it's like Jesus saying, look right here in my eyes. I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. And he's faithful. Because he's eternal. He can say those words and we can be assured by it. And then lastly today, number two. He is the sustainer, number three, excuse me. He is the sustainer of the universe. By him, 
all things, Paul said, hold together. Paul uses the perfect tense grammatically here in the Greek, which means he continues to hold all things together. Never stops holding all things together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it this way. He sustains all things by his powerful word. The word that created the universe, when he said, let's make it happen, and it happened, the world that sustains this universe comes from the mouth of Jesus. The universe and all that are in it, from the largest galaxy to the tiniest atom, all are under his sustenance. None of this would be here. Nothing that you see that's visible would be here if it had not been for Jesus Christ and his creative power. None of this would be here if it were not for Jesus Christ and his ability to hold it all together and keep it going. Some people, we talk, we know about gravity, what keeps us all from floating off. Gravity. We talk about centrifugal force. Remember that that you learned about when you were in school? You put the water in the bucket and spin it around and it stays in the bucket. Wow. Don't those things, some might talk about electromagnetism that holds all the atoms together. Well, yeah, but who created those things? Where did gravity come from? Jesus. And who could make those things stop with a word if he wanted to? Jesus. That's why we exalt him as God. Let me say this in closing. He is not just the God for the Christians. Jesus, yeah, he's the Christian's God. He's not just the God for the Christians. He's the only legitimate one to claim deity in the universe. There is no other, and all other attempts by anyone else, what others claim to be God are false. The big question you and I have to answer is this this morning. The one thing that determines our eternity Because, by by the way, you and I are eternal as well, and the fact that we are everlasting. We're all going to wind up somewhere. The question that I have to ask is, determining my eternity is, have I made Jesus my God? Remember Thomas, one of the disciples after the the crucifixion and the resurrection, and Jesus appeared to him and the other disciples in in a room where they were hiding out and Jesus gave them proof, and he said, Hey, you want proof that I am raised from the dead? Here are the wounds in my hands. Put your, in my feet, put your hand in the wound in my side if you need to, Thomas. And Thomas went from being a doubter to a believer and said these words, My Lord and my God. Have you made Jesus your God? Have you trusted him? Just like Thomas waits, just like Thomas Jesus waits, to be accepted by you and by me as our God. And he isn't some distant God out there that we can never see and never know. He desires to indwell you. He desires to have a personal relationship with you if he doesn't already. All you've got to do is acknowledge that he alone is God. That he loved me and that he died in my place to take away my guilt, to give me freedom and forgiveness. That's how it starts. That's it. If you've never received Jesus as your God, as your Savior, and you'd like to do that, I would, lo- I would like to just pray for you. No greater decision you could ever make in this lifetime. So could we all bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment? 
If today you're here and you would say, I, I don't know that Jesus Christ is my Savior, my God, because I don't know there's ever been a time when I've accepted him as that. And I believe that the Bible teaches there is a time in your life when you must make that decision, make that change from death to life, have that new birth, as Jesus described it to Nicodemus. No one is a Christian all their lives. We've got to come to that place where we receive Christ. And you say, I don't know that I've been there. I don't know that I've done that. I'm not sure that my eternity will be spent in heaven because I don't know I've ever been born again. And you would like to do that today. You say, today I think this is what I need to do. Something inside of me is saying, accept Christ today. I'd like to pray for you. Not call you by name, not step down and go and tap you on the shoulder, not embarrass you. I just want to pray and not just talk to God for a second about what's going on in your heart. If you'd like for me to pray for you right now, and my prayer won't make you a Christian, please understand that. I want to pray for you that you'll do the right thing. Just slip your hand up in the air. Yes, today I would like to accept Christ. And anyone else? Today, I want to get this settled in my life. Thank you. God bless you, ladies. Thank you. Anyone else? And put your hand down. Anybody else? Now, I'm going to pray in a second, but what I'd like you to do, if you're today receiving Christ, I want you to let me know. Why don't you come up and tell me after we're done. I'm just going to hang out here. Father, you see the hands have been raised, and you know the hearts. You know the need. And Father, would today, those that need Christ as Savior, receive him as such. As the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator, the sustainer of this universe, but most of all as our Savior, as our Redeemer. By simple faith, just by believing. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.